Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 12th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, an attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB clarified the 20-day time limit to schedule a referral medical appointment does not apply to the selection of the primary treating physician. In this case, Louis Beltran Wittron claimed an injury to the bilateral shoulders, neck, back, and chest on May 5, 2019, while employed as a laborer by Polymetric Technology Corporation. The following August, the carrier sent a letter to him acknowledging his claim. Enclosed with the letter was a copy of the required MPN notification in English and Spanish, and subsequently they sent him a notice of acceptance of his claim, and an MPN notification in English and Spanish was again enclosed. The claim was accepted for the left shoulder, and Mr. Wittron initially treated at Concentra within the MPN. His attorney filed an application for adjudication of claim more than a year later, and at the same time sent a letter requesting a change of PTP and nominated NMCI Medical Clinic for that role. In February 2021, the attorney sent a letter stating that the applicant will commence treatment with NMCI, an out-of-network provider, claiming that the carrier failed to provide the applicant with an MPN PTP per the previous demand months earlier. On the same date and in response, the carrier sent an email to the attorney stating that the claim was accepted for the left shoulder, but if his client is interested in receiving medical treatment, he can use the MPN and and designate a treating physician of his choice. At an expedited hearing, the applicant contended that he had the right to treat outside the MPN because the defendant failed to comply with his demand letter for a change of treating doctor and a request to schedule the initial appointment required by Rule 9767.5. The work comp judge found that there was indeed a delay in defendant in responding to his request for a change of treating physician, but that delay did not constitute a neglect or refusal of medical treatment. Reconsideration of this finding was denied in the WCAB panel decision of Wittron v. Polymetric Technology Corporation. The issue on reconsideration was whether the defendant's delay in responding to applicant's September 2020 request to treat with NMCI, an out-of-network provider, constituted a neglect or refusal to provide medical care. The board found that applicant was treating regularly in the MPN from August 2019 when he was injured until January 2020, about six months later, and that there was no evidence in the record of any treatment after January 2020. The applicant sent his request to treat with NMCI six months later in September 2020. There was a delay by the defendant in responding to his request until February 2021. However, the applicant did not provide evidence at trial of any treatment or even efforts to obtain treatment following his September 2020 request. 
the 20-day time limit for a medical access assistant to schedule an appointment per Rule 9767.5, which was the rule at issue here, only applies where the applicant is scheduling an appointment with a specialist based on a referral, not to the scheduling of an initial appointment with a primary treating physician. The record did not indicate that applicant was seeing an appointment with was seeking an appointment with a specialist based on a referral. Rather, it shows that he was requesting treatment generally. Moreover, he did not request assistance from a medical access assistant. Therefore, the rule 9767.5 did not apply to the facts of this case. Fifteen states that led the effort to block a controversial bankruptcy plan for OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma have abandoned their fight. Among the states that have agreed to sign on to the bankruptcy deal are Massachusetts and New York, whose attorneys general had mounted the fierce legal opposition to the proposed agreement. Yet nine states have yet to agree to the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy plan, including California. The federal bankruptcy judge stated that the negotiations were difficult and hard-fought, with the outcome uncertain. The new settlement plan, which now all but is certain to be finalized next month, would shelter members of the Sackler family who own Purdue Pharma and many of their associates from future opioid lawsuits. In return, the Sacklers have agreed to give up ownership of the bankrupt drug company. They will also pay out about $4.2 billion from their private fortunes in installments spread over the next decade. And according to the mediator's report, the Sacklers have now agreed to boost their settlement payment by a relatively modest amount of $50 million. The deal also includes a material expansion of the public document repository already created under the settlement plan that aims to provide some transparency about Purdue Pharma's role in the opioid endemic. Purdue Pharma has pleaded guilty twice to federal criminal charges related to its opioid marketing practices, first in 2007 and again last year. The Sacklers have never faced charges. Under this deal, they will admit no wrongdoing and will remain one of the wealthiest families in the United States. And now our fraud report. The CEO of several Southern California-based medical imaging companies was found guilty by a federal jury of running a scheme in which more than $250 million in claims were fraudulently submitted through the state's workers' compensation system for medical services procured through bribes and kickbacks to physicians and others. 40-year-old Sam Sarkis Salakian, who lives in Glendale, was found guilty of one count of conspiracy to commit honest services mail fraud and health care fraud and 11 counts of honest services mail fraud after an eight-day jury trial. Salakian was the CEO of several medical imaging companies, <clears throat> including the Glendale-based Vital Imaging, Inc. and San Diego MRI Institute. 
Salakian operated diagnostic imaging facilities throughout California, including the Bay Area, Los Angeles and Orange Counties, and San Diego. Salakian conspired with Stephen Rigler, a Solana Beach-based chiropractor, with Furman Iglesias, the former CEO of Medex Solutions, a patient scheduling company, and others, to perpetrate a scheme in which physicians were paid bribes and kickbacks in exchange for the referral of workers' comp patients. The compensation offered to the corrupt doctors consisted of either cash or referrals of new patients in what was known as a cross-referral scheme. Salakian's recruiters required physicians to refer a minimum number of patients to receive cross-referrals, and those referrals stopped if the physician failed to meet the minimum quota. Salakian's recruiters, 41-year-old Furman Iglesias of Glendale and 39-year-old Carlos Arguello of Bonita, were paid more than $8.6 million for obtaining MRI referrals. In total, Salakian submitted more than a quarter of $250 million in claims for medical services procured through the payment of bribes and kickbacks. Chiropractor Rigler pleaded guilty in November 2015 to one count of conspiracy to commit honest services mail fraud and was sentenced to six months in federal prison. Iglesias pleaded guilty in December 2016 to conspiracy to commit honest services mail fraud and health care fraud, and he was sentenced in February 2019 to five years in federal prison. Arguello pleaded guilty in August 2016 to conspiracy to commit honest services mail fraud and health care fraud, and he was sentenced in April 2019 to four years in federal prison. An October 4 sentencing hearing has been scheduled at which time Salakian will face a statutory maximum sentence of 240 years in federal prison. We'll see how that works out for him. Bank of America, which since 2010 has had an exclusive contract with the State Employment Development Department to deliver unemployment benefits through prepaid debit cards, wants to end the contract, even though the Employment Development Department just renewed it for another two years. The news comes about a month after a federal judge, as part of a class action lawsuit, ordered Bank of America to stop using an automated fraud filter that blocked tens of thousands of legitimate claimants from accessing their benefits after they reported suspicious account activity. The bank said it received 230,000 claims of debit card fraud from October 2020 through March 2021. Bank of America's desire to end the contract is striking, given that both the bank and the state are paid merchant's fees whenever an unemployment debit card is swiped. EDD has pocketed millions in fees amid the pandemic. It earned more than $47 million from March 2020 through April 2021, even though the claims of more than 1.1 million jobless Californians remained in limbo. However, Bank of America told state lawmakers it lost hundreds of millions of dollars on the contract last year, 
<clears throat> and it, as it scrambled to respond to California's rampant unemployment fraud. The bank advised the state that it would like to exit this business as soon as possible. Ultimately, the cost of California's unemployment fraud will likely fall on taxpayers, and businesses will likely shoulder the staggering weight of California's unemployment insurance debt, which experts estimate could reach $27.7 billion by the end of the year. Meanwhile, the EDD is still struggling to answer the millions of phone calls it receives each week, so much so that California's 80 state assembly members were just given the green light to hire two staffers each to handle EDD problems. The DWC has not accepted any walk-in documents or walk-through documents as a safety measure resulting from the COVID pandemic. Documents have only been accepted by way of e-filing, jet filing, or by mail since that time. However, the pandemic-related restrictions are showing some signs of relaxation, at least at one local office. Pamela Pulley, the presiding judge of the DWC Santa Ana office, announced the status of her office availability for the immediate future. First, she made it clear that she does not yet have a date to reopen the office for hearings. She does, however, have a date to reopen counters to the public. As of Monday, July 26, her offices will be open for the very limited purpose of filing documents dropping off rating requests, obtaining calendar dates for hearings, copy service, and providing information and assistance to unrepresented litigants. They are not yet reopening for walking through settlements or hearings of any nature. Those will continue to be conducted online or over the phone for the time being. The building's current policy is that unvaccinated persons must continue to wear masks. It is likely that other local offices will announce similar policies soon. And in medical news, the United States spends more on health care than any other country, with costs approaching 18% of the gross domestic product. Overtreatment and low-value care cost the U.S. healthcare system about $100 billion annually. That, yes, that's billion with a B. Despite the associated high cost, unnecessary or ineffective care appear to be on the rise. One strategy to promote quality, value-based care is applying evidence-based medicine to help guide treatment decisions. Evidence-based medicine integrates medical research with clinical expertise and patient values to support decision-making based on the best available evidence. Well, how well does that work? Researchers attempted to answer that question in a study recently published in the journal PLOS. They noted that in the U.S. state workers' compensation systems have developed or adopted treatment guidelines to promote evidence-based care for occupational injuries. The most common occupational injury is back strain, and occupational stressors are thought to contribute to low back pain. 
The point of this new study was to quantify the influence of adherence to guideline-recommended interventions in the first week of treatment for an initial low back pain injury on lost workdays. In a retrospective cohort study of California's workers' compensation claim data, 41 diagnostic and treatment interventions were abstracted from the medical claims for workers with acute low back pain injuries, and that was compared with guideline recommendations. Lost workdays within one year post-injury were compared by guideline adherence. Nearly 60,000 workers met the study inclusion criteria, and the reviewers concluded that when workers received guideline-recommended interventions, they typically returned to work in fewer days. The majority of workers received at least one non-recommended intervention, demonstrating the need for adherence to guideline recommendations. Fewer lost workdays and improved quality of care are outcomes that strongly benefit injured workers. The number of new COVID-19 infections in Los Angeles County again pushed over the 500 mark on Wednesday, July 7th, while the number of people hospitalized reached nearly 300. Los Angeles County has been seeing a rise in daily COVID-19 infections over the past two weeks, reporting more than 600 new cases on Saturday, nearly triple the numbers being reported in mid-June. On the Wednesday after the July 4th weekend, the county reported 515 new infections, although some of those cases could be the result of a reporting backlog from the long holiday weekend. The new cases pushed the cumulative countywide total during the pandemic to nearly 1,254,000. According to state figures, there were 296 people hospitalized due to COVID in the county, up from 275 on Tuesday. There were 71 people in intensive care, down 70 from 73 a day earlier. While hospitalization numbers have been increasing slowly, they are still a fraction of the four-digit figures seen during the county's winter surge of infections. Health officials have said the county's recent increases in daily infections and testing positively are being fueled by the rise in COVID-19 variants, particularly the highly contagious Delta variant. They added that with 4 million residents in L.A. County still unvaccinated, including 1.3 million children who are not eligible for shots, there is enough risk for the variant to pose a significant threat. Delta has also become California's most identified strain of the coronavirus, accounting for more than 35% of the variants analyzed in June, a steep increase from May when the number was just 5.6%. As of last week, more than 10.4 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine had been administered in Los Angeles County. The latest numbers show that 59% of residents aged 16 or older are fully vaccinated, while 68% have received at least one dose. The weekly pace of vaccinations, however, has slowed from a winter-spring high of about 500,000 doses per week in the county to now less than 60,000. 
Vaccinations continue to lag amongst the black community, which is also bearing the brunt of the new COVID infections and hospitalizations. And now the Seattle Times reports that the Gamma variant, on the other hand, is associated with a higher hospitalization rate in that state and increased breakthrough infections. That variant, also known as P.1, now accounts for 16% of the cases in Washington state and is the fastest rising variant in that state. The head of the World Health Organization, WHO, said on July 6 that he, the world is facing a two-track pandemic, with some countries being hit by waves of hospitalization and deaths compounded by the coronavirus variants. The fast-spreading Delta variant of the coronavirus is driving up infections in developing countries that are dangerously short on COVID-19 vaccines to battle deadly surges, and whose healthcare systems are struggling to cope. The results of outbreaks of the Delta variant elsewhere also support the vaccine's effectiveness. So far, vaccinated people seem to be protected against infection and illness from the Delta variant. One recent study found that the full two-dose course of the Pfizer vaccine was 88% effective against symptomatic disease caused by the Delta variant, and 96% protective against hospitalization. The characterization of the two-track pandemic seems to differentiate countries with high levels of vaccinated population with those who, do, who have not yet been able to vaccinate their citizens. The Delta variant of the coronavirus disease has now spread to at least 98 countries, and is the most contagious variant of the virus to be identified until now. The World Health Organization warned on Saturday that the world is currently in a very dangerous period of the pandemic, and the Delta variant is continuing to evolve and mutate. Foreign news sources report that in Europe, Portugal, Russia, and the United Kingdom, they are all witnessing a massive spike in daily cases due to the Delta variant. The entire continent at present is struggling to accelerate the vaccination drive and outpace the spread of this variant. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization chief explained that there are ways for countries to push back against the new COVID-19 surges. Public health and social measures like strong surveillance, strategic testing, early case detection, isolation, and clinical care remain critical as well as masking, physical distancing, avoiding crowded places, and keeping indoor areas well ventilated. And through the global sharing of protective gear, oxygen, tests, treatments, and vaccines. The World Health Organization chief urged leaders across the world to work together to ensure that by this time next year, 70% of all people in every country are vaccinated. So far, already 3 billion vaccines have been distributed. The World Health Organization chief further called for ramping up vaccine manufacturing by sharing vaccines as well as the technology and know-how. Last week, the IMF, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization joined the World Health Organization in calling for urgent action 
to increase vaccine supplies. They also asked the G20 group of nations to accelerate efforts to reach vaccination targets. And that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports in your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.